Hi, I'm Jennifer Isabella. And I'm Stephanie Belores. Your co-host for Forrester's podcast, What It Means, where we explore the major changes in the market influencing executive priorities. Today, we're joined by Vice President and Research Director Merritt Maxim and Vice President and Principal Analyst Andrash Chair to discuss the security challenges around the use of biometric data. Welcome both. Hi there. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for having us. So biometric data is certainly a, a broad term, and I think we're going to be focusing on one specific area. So maybe let us know what that one specific area that we're focusing on and, and some examples. Yeah, sure. So when we talk about biometrics, um, there's really kind of three uh, dominant modalities that are most widely used today, um, finger, face, and voice. Uh, there is a range of other emerging technologies that have been around um, from everything from EKG to how you walk to um, hand geometry that, that persists in the market, but they certainly don't have as widespread adoption as those three. And that's where most kind of adoption interest has been, you know, for the last, uh, you know, five plus years. Why those three merit? Is it because they're facilitated by like our mobile devices? It's been promoted heavily by big vendors or, or and are there just other inherent challenges, say with like gate biometric that just don't make it reasonable that it would be up taken up by the market? Yeah, I mean I think the the certainly finger and face, those those have really been driven uh, heavily by the mobile phone market. So Apple with the introduction of touch ID and then following it with face ID and then um, Android kind of following along over the last five years, that's really had probably the most significant impact at getting the technology in the hands of everyday users. Um, Finger obviously has been around for a very long time. It has roots in law enforcement uh, and there's a large body of work that's in place there. And and if you went back, you know, 10 plus years, you know, laptops and things were, you know, looking at um, embedding uh, fingerprint readers into their laptops, but then uh, really the surge in face and other things with the mobile phone and the mobility that that provided really has changed out. And that's really what's probably led those modalities to be uh, most effective. And of course, voice doesn't necessarily require any specialized hardware as long as, long as you have access to, to a phone line. So that's uh, that's probably why those have led. And, and these other emerging ones still persist and they often come out of academic institutions. Um, there often is a kind of a James Bond factor with some of these that they, they sound kind of interesting, but they're, they're very hard to understand really truly how unique they are and, and can they be spoofed and what are the kind of uh, other kind of privacy or usability concerns and that, that that's probably helped those three remain kind of the, the dominant uh, mechanisms that uh, companies look at and, and users uh, use uh, today and will continue to use going forward. Yeah, totally. So use, ease of use is definitely the big thing, right? Um, all these other kind of technologies, you know, we've seen a bunch of like uh, retina and iris kind of detection types of biometrics that, you know, really required the users to do su- such awkward things that, you know, th- this is clear that they're never going to fly in, in real life, you know, just holding the phone's camera like an inch, you know, distance to your eyeballs and looking left is, is not going to not, not gonna be easily explainable to my grandmother, right? So that's just not going to go anywhere for that. Straight out of Mission Impossible, right? Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. that's not happening in real life. Are there other industries that you've seen like an uptick um, in in use of, of this data? Um, I'd say uh, so, so voice biometrics has definitely been used for a long, you know, longer period of time, in, especially in Europe, in the financial services and telco industries. Um, 
healthcare, you know, anywhere where you got speech recognition, you know, being voice control speech recognition is, is definitely a ripe and, and good ground to kind of combine speech recognition with voice, biometric voice brain-based authentication, identification of users. Um, you know, facial recognition is, is definitely an important element in, um, you know, crowd control surveillance systems that had always been, right, spotting, you know, bad apples and bad actors in large crowds. That's just something that um, had been um, uh, on the forefront of attention. Uh, obviously, you know, law enforcement, travel has been an area uh, where we've seen some uptake of uh, facial biometrics. If you board a plane internationally, leaving the U.S. airport, you're more than likely to go through um, the exits of, you know, exit system uh, of, of immigration, right? And obviously when you come into the country, I'm not, not sure if you noticed, but you are also taking a, uh, a photo these days that's also biometric matching against, you know, the, the passport uh, uh, actually database, uh, passport photo database. Yeah. It's interesting. A lot of the use cases that you mentioned are more of um government, immigration, physical security. I mean, it's interesting. A lot of times when people hear surveillance, um, particularly with like facial recognition, I, I think a lot of the news lately about facial recognition has been negative. Um, I'm curious, what are the most common consumer-oriented use cases that would actually pe make people embrace the technology? Um, I think everybody's sort of familiar with Apple Face ID on their, their iPhone Identity verification, so not having to go to a branch, right, and show the teller or an agent or whoever is at a physical branch to positively identify you when you, for example, want to open an account or want to enroll in an insurance program and be able to kind of get, be verified, right, using uh, your mobile phone or your, or your laptop's camera. And just you know, showing the document, right? Physical, you know, physical document to the camera or the mobile app, and then doing the selfie, and then so enrollment, digital enrollment, uh, without physically having to visit a branch or a location. That's something that people definitely are more receptive to these days. Right, right. right. It, it might be interesting to kind of break down the, the risks and challenges of these techs, and then talk about like what the potential trade offs are to individuals and and consumers. Um, I mean, some of the risks and challenges, I mean, we just kind of hinted at, um, you know, privacy violations. I mean, I think even that word surveillance, <laughs> that just immediately makes people cringe a little bit. Um, yeah, I mean, I'd say like one of the, the biggest challenges, even when before we talk about the risk, is just um, particularly in the consumer space, like changing consumer authentication behavior um, is actually very hard to do short of actual outright financial incentives. Um, uh, consumers are a creature of habit. And even if they know that, say, passwords are are bad and can be compromised, um, you know, it's still actually hard to get them to actually change their habits. Um, and, you know, we see this with institutions that want to deploy biometrics or even something like two-factor authentication, and they understand the benefits there, but um, the actual uptick uh, of adoption really varies because users, you know, may just say, well, um, I'm just not, you know, I don't want to change. I'm used to kind of doing it the way I, way I have. Um, and so there, that's probably one of the, the bigger challenges is kind of user education and getting them to, to try 
try a new a new form, and then you know you, part of that is, is explaining to them the, the the benefits that that come from that, and and certainly you have to overcome whatever privacy concerns or kind of the surveillance aspects that that come into play. Um, and, and facial recognition has definitely gotten um, you know pretty a lot fair amount of negative news over the last few years. A lot of uh, cities in the U.S. have actually implemented bans on using facial recognition by law enforcement, and there's been a range of, of cases showing that, you know, facial recognition may have implicit biases when it comes to race or gender, and so that's, um, you know, a, a concern as well, and so kind of all those things um, have to be uh, addressed, uh, you know, in order to, to kind of get the comfort level to uh, for people to adopt it, and even if you've done all those, you may still not find the adoption at the level you want because users just may not feel comfortable uh, trying that new approach based on uh, a range of external factors that you may not have much control over. Yeah. Well, I, what I would add here, right, is there is a gigantic difference, right, as to you know what the local culture looks like, right? You know what the receptiveness in a country to that biometric technology looks like, right? And you go to the far, you know, to some countries in Asia, right? You're gonna not gonna find any you know much kind of resistance against any of these kind of technologies in europe you find some you know probably a lot higher level of, of resistance north america is probably closer to to europe um so i, I think what's really important to, like mary said user education as well as explaining to, to the user exactly you know how their uh, registration sample or template is being stored so this is where the user kind of initially registers for um any kind of biometrics and how their authentication time when they try to authenticate or log in using their facial voice or fingerprint id is being stored and transmitted and where the match happens so for example if you're using your mobile phone right it's really critical to understand that uh, in, in client-side biometrics, when the when the match happens on your phone and it doesn't, the, the sample never leaves right your phone. So the face ID, touch ID would never you know, allow the sample registration sample to leave your phone. This is a lot safer, right? And there's a lot less risk around anybody losing your your biometric data because it never really leaves your phone. And most hackers would not want to go after individually users' phones to extract this kind of information. So that's one thing. And if you have server-side match, right? A lot of lot of uh, organizations really do not communicate well the fact that many of these systems will actually not store right the full uh, facial voice or fingerprint biometrics data on the server. It's not like your face gets captured or your fingerprint in its entirety or your voice audio in its entirety gets captured uh, on the server and it's in a template right with more you know modern solutions at least. And then you, when you try to authenticate again, you transmit the whole kind of facial sample or transmit the entire um, fingerprint or, or voice audio. You can do a lot of pre-processing on the capturing endpoint on your mobile phone or your, or your laptop. Uh, basically evaluate certain attributes, right? And certain characteristics of a large kind of uh, pool, such as, you know, how far your eyes sit, you know, what's the distance between your nose and eyes and ears and all that extract these parameters from both the enrollment time and registration template, as well as the authentication time template, and only transmit these select parameters in an encrypted way to the server where, where the match happens. 
So in reality, right, there's a, you know, for modern solutions, there's a lot less to be for consumers to worry about in terms of privacy uh, than what we, we typically see. The problem here is that this is most often not communicated uh, sufficiently or, or in a way that's understandable for a normal layperson to do. Yeah. Uh, I mean, we're, we're talking about some fairly technical concepts here, like understanding yes. device side and mobile side versus server side, and then everything you just described more in terms of... Um, of how the match is actually done. You know, no, they're not doing a full comparison of image to image. I mean, these are some pretty technical concepts. And then you keep mentioning modern solutions. So that would imply that there's some Lego legacy solutions out there that don't work this way. Um, I'm thinking particularly, I forget exactly how many years ago it was, might've been five years ago. The U S office of personnel management had a security breach and I think thousands of people had their fingerprints um, compromised and stolen. And it's like, that's it. It's, it's done. Your fingerprints are now, have now been compromised um, by what's believed to have been a nation state. In fact, one of the analysts on our team who had been doing U.S. government work and had had a, um, a formal background check, actually come to think of it, I've done some federal government work. <laughs> I should probably go back and check that database. Um, you know, your fingerprints are, are compromised forever. Yep. And it's even um, come out recently just with the the fall of Afghanistan, that their uh, Afghanistan government had various biometric databases for citizens and other things that uh, are now hands of uh, the Taliban. And the question was, is there's debate about how secure that data is and whether that could be used to compromise. But again, that that's the that's the danger of, um, you know, these server-side systems. If the database gets compromised, just like in the Office of Personnel Management now, that data could in fact be used, uh, you know, to impersonate or do all, all kinds of things that, that um, could be very hard to uh, control or, or um, uh, eliminate because, uh, um, you know, the user, uh, as long as they're alive, their biometric data is still, still available and still in use. So that's the tough part. If, if Whether you're a consumer or you're an employee, whether or not you want to give your consent or actually actively enroll and participate in these biometric solutions, you, you yep. actually have to understand, um, like, is it a modern approach? Like, how exactly are they storing your biometric data? Or and where, if at all, and then you know, if it is some sort of server-side computation, are they doing more of an approximation as opposed to, you know, a true side-by-side kind of uh, comparison? So it's a lot for individuals to take in. Besides the the fact that we're all creatures of habits, and we're not, we don't easily change our our day-to-day habits. And there's retention, right? As, yeah. you know, how can you, as a consumer, verify that you know this big governmental organization, in fact, really deleted your image, right, after the 30-day period, right? I mean, there's just no way to do that, really. Mm-hmm. I was going to ask, how does regulation play here? I mean, I know you know the GDPR in in Europe, and you know, that's just it's different altitudes or different levels of of regulation. Like, how how is that impacted? implementation of some of these technologies or uh, consumer adoption? So besides GDPR, in in the U.S. right now, um, biometric is kind of a patchwork, and it's really been done at the state and local level. There's um, So Illinois, for example, has had a law on the books since 2009 called the Biometric Information Protection Act, or BIPA, um, that actually has survived a range of court challenges and uh, will continue to have a range of things that that, um, consumers have successfully sued against entities for collecting their biometric information without their consent. Um, And so that that's kind of the 
the most dominant one. Other states have been considering similar laws. I think Texas and Washington State uh, have done as well. And then I, I previously mentioned some of these bans. Uh, I know like, um, I think city of Cambridge, San Francisco, uh, Seattle, some other cities have actually implemented the use of any facial recognition account by any city agency. Um, so it, it is kind of a, um, uh, a mix and match. And, and if we're, I'm not confident that we'll get to a, a kind of a federal equivalent uh, anytime soon, but certainly the, the regulatory environment is something that, you know, people have to be aware of because it is ongoing. And uh, the more potential abuses or things we hear about, the more there will be pressure on legislators to come up with regulatory uh, solutions to try to mitigate uh, some of those problems that uh, users may perceive around the use of these technologies. And there's obviously, you know, if a city, local, or state government prohibits the use of, of biometrics for any reason, right? How can a commercial organization, right, uh, use biometrics in that kind of environment? So does it create any kind of cha challenge or controversy or, or just, you know, outright kind of conflict in, in, in how you interpret the law, right? So that's another kind of interesting thing that, you know, in San Francisco, are you going to be able to use biometrics for commercial purposes when the city and, and state disallows it explicitly for, um, for any agency use, right? For, for these reasons, right? So that's another kind of inhibiting factor there as well. We focus a lot on a lot of the risks and challenges. I mean, obviously there's still interest in it and demand for it and companies are exploring it and we have successful deployments um, of it. I mean, what, what are the overriding benefits both for commercial enterprises that are considering it, but also for the users, whether you're an employee or a consumer? We, we touched a little bit on user user experience. I mean, is that the main trade-off, which is, you know, once I set this up, I'm not remembering my crazy eight character password that has to have a mixture of lowercase, uppercase, um, you know, or remembering random security questions um, that you made up six years ago. <laughs> You're like, and you oh. find on Facebook the answers yeah. to this yeah. on Facebook. Yeah, yeah, I mean, if you had a name like the top three or five, like key benefits that are just keeping this alive, despite everything. Yeah, I mean, if you if you look in the in the travel use case specifically, um, and again, that's where you know, kind of pre-COVID, there was a fair amount of success. You know, being able to use your facial recognition, it a may have allowed you to board the plane sooner and or faster. And if it allows you to board faster, it improves the probability of you having an on-time departure, which increases the likelihood that you'll meet your connecting flight. And so even though there's not a monetary benefit there, that is something that the average consumer probably does care about. And likewise, if I use face recognition, it means I can get through immigration and customs much faster than waiting in a line. Like that's an example where there is some, uh, some user benefit. Um, and even if the user experience may be a little cumbersome, uh, I think you know, uh, evidence has shown that that consumers will, will uh, consider that if there is uh, some uh, material benefit, you know, mainly reduce time or improve convenience that they get in return for doing that. Um, unfortunately, you know, the, the downturn in travel kind of disrupted, I think, a lot of plans from airports and airlines to pursue that. But I think as, as travel starts to pick up again, I, I think we'll see more of that. And, and I think that's at least one example where as long as there is some tangible benefit to the user, um, their willingness to try it, I, I think, is certainly higher than, than if it's unclear what, what, what they're going to get uh, out of using a, a certain approach. Beyond the the user friction and experience, right? I would also mention employee uh, experience and employee kind of productivity. So, uh, talking to uh, 
a bank, like a local Massachusetts bank, where, where they, when they implemented voice biometrics in their contact center, uh, they mentioned that the customer support representatives before implementation were super frustrated and overworked with trying to identify and then authenticate users, right? You have to go through a bunch of questions, right? To some of, to some of which the answers are not trivial. Um, you might have to kind of dig, you know, customers have to dig back through their paperwork. The customers may be upset about this, right? And then it becomes a really an, an authentication kind of power play, you know, in, in some instances, right? Which is really frustrating, not only for the customer, right? But also for the employee, the customer support representative. Same thing if you have an airport, like a boarding um, activity uh, where you board when uh, board with typically with your facial biometric as a as a main rule, um, you know there's a lot less kind of uh, frustration and extra work for the on the, the the boarding personnel right of the airline or the airport right so it's a lot clearer thing the machine either made the choice you, you're you're there and you are this person or not and you these guys are these employees only have to deal with the exception cases right where there's extra uh, you know maybe this is a false reject and then you have to identify the user using gold-fashioned legacy methods right so a lot less work and a lot less frustration for employees as well. And then I would also mention that um, uh, a lot of these types of technologies may be um, very much applicable across the channel. So if you are able to use like a, uh, again, it's user experience, but and also but the development cost and cost of an authentication event, if you're calling a call center and you can use your mobile device and mobile app with a with a facial recognition, facial authentication, or fingerprint to log into the call center, then the call center representative doesn't have to do anything, right? There's a back channel internet, uh, you know, handshake, and you're logged in, right? I mean, that's that's all it is to it. So that that's another kind of service delivery and simplification of business process that type of benefit there. So it sounds like a lot of it is really about the use case. I mean, we, we picked a lot on on surveillance and some of these other kinds of authentication that might impinge on privacy. But if it, it really comes down to the use case and who it's ultimately benefiting. Um, so I, I guess for commercial enterprises, if they're considering this technology, how do they strike the right balance? And, you know, what's the decision process they go through to minimize the risk or even decide if they move forward with this? Um, I would say that you have to construct the business case, right? Um, you know, we've done a total economic impact studies for end user event for, for vendor organizations, right? You know, so there's always a cost of implementation, uh, buying the solution, implementing the solution, putting it, tuning, all that. Um, so, so the benefit you know, you, you typically would want to investigate uh, and evaluate as an end user organization, things like onboarding cycle times, authentication cycle time, the time it takes for somebody to log in with and without, with or without uh, some kind of a biometric technology. So look at the benefits, right? That that um, biometrics will allow you to achieve, right? Um, net benefits, that's, that's definitely, you know, one thing. Letting people opt, so then, then the legal side of things, letting people opt out uh, if they have a reason or even just, 
you know, without a reason, right? You can you can say you can always say at an airport that I do not want to use facial biometrics, right? They mean they actually, and it's it's clearly communicated to the user, right? There's there's this long description of that what we do with this facial print, and at the very bottom there's it says that there's alternative technologies and and processes are that are available to you, and without you having to provide an explanation why you want to use those. So basically, opting out without any kind of a, of a of a of an explanation for the customer is definitely important. Secondly, thirdly, I've seen people. Um, um, kind of simplifying actually uh, their uh, operational processes and building in biometrics. So, for for example, um, when when you look at voice biometrics in a contact center, right? Uh, typically, when you're gonna when a customer calls a contact center, they're gonna hear something like uh, the following: Your call may be recorded for you know quality assurance. And, and process purposes, right? Something like so the, 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 the emphasis is here is maybe recorded. If you change that announcement, right, to, you know, by continuing this conversation, you agree to the fact that your call will be recorded for, you know, authentication, security, and quality uh, purposes. That in of itself basically allows the company to to record a voice and do voice biometrics, for example, for authentication. So, so sometimes tuning these types of um, of business processes and being more explicit around what's going to happen and not asking for explicit. Uh, permission to use biometrics, but basically saying that it's implicitly uh, allowed and implicitly consented to by the user. And if the, the user wants to opt out, then they have to say, you know, I don't want, I, I don't want to do it this way, or, or want to be authenticated in a different way. You know, what's interesting too. I was wanted to ask about. I think there's also the sense that oh, because this is your physical information, uh, you know it doesn't change over time. So I was curious, like, do these also have to be updated? For example, like as you age, your face changes, your voice changes. Um, I had a good friend that um, because of a, a certain type of chemotherapy agent that he was treated with, it actually affected the ridges of his fingerprint. Um, so fingerprint scanning and fingerprint ID doesn't work for him. That That's actually the kind of $64,000 question, particularly because a lot of these technologies have emerged you know, fairly recently, you know, fingers been around for a while. So that one, I think we have some general confidence that fingerprints don't, I think, change a whole lot over the course of lifetime. But to your point, there are um, people like, for instance, I know uh, like stonemasons or people who work, uh, you know, with their hands a lot, they can actually wear their fingerprints down and they may not actually have readable fingerprints. And there can be other physiological characteristics that actually just make you unable to provide a fingerprint. Um, I think in the facial and, and voice case, um, you know, there's claims that the algorithms are designed to allow for aging and changes either in voice tone or facial characteristics. But to be honest, I don't think these technologies have been in the market long enough for us to really know that for sure. I mean, you really probably need to check back in another 15 years and see, you know, the people who signed up for facial recognition in, you know, 2015, um, you know, what's it like in, in 2035 or something. And so I, I, and that's, I think, still an unknown. I, the, obviously, the vendors are working on their algorithms to do that, but I, I don't think we've actually had enough 
practice it to really confirm that that they actually are able to um, um, you know move with time and they don't require a, a re-enrollment at some point in the future and of course the other thing that will put in parallel right is that camera fidelity and lens qualities will continue to improve from a price performance perspective so the ability to capture a higher quality image um, will increase over time in, in mobile phones and that may also uh, further complicate things because it may mean that if they can collect a higher quality image versus the one you enrolled is that going to create some kind of mismatch and it won't actually be able to um, recognize it because the fidelity is so much better than what you used, you know, two or three years ago. Despite all the risks and challenges, like going forward, why do we think adoption is going to continue to increase? I think that the pandemic has introduced, you know, certainly much more digital interactions. In other words, if you physically can't go to the branch or the government agency office, um, uh, and you know, we know that certainly in the U.S. that there was a high level of fraud, whether it was with unemployment claims or um, some of the kind of COVID recovery funds, and, and states in response did start to implement other kinds, whether it was document verification or facial or other things, as a means to try to reduce fraud. And again, that was a use case that didn't really exist at scale, you know, prior to March of 2020. Um, and I think some of those things may in fact now become permanent. You know, I think users got used to, you know, if I don't have to go down and, you know, find a place to park and wait in line to do this stuff, if I can just do this from home, uh, that's obviously a benefit. But the challenge of course is this may in some ways further uh, exacerbate the digital divide because, you know, there may be certain classes of people that, you know, don't have access to a computer or don't have access to a certain kind of phone. And those people have to continue to use, you know, the older systems. And so that that's, I think, an ongoing challenge with this stuff is that it, it certainly has real benefits, but it may not be accessible to everyone. And then that, you know, does that create other uh, challenges in, in society as a whole that, you know, certain people can benefit from it, but not everyone can. But I, I do think those kinds of uh, things that we saw, you know, emerge in response to the kind of work from home during the pandemic. I think a lot of those are going to continue going forward, and that's going to drive, continue to drive, you know, adoption of biometric for for a lot of these kinds of use cases uh, going forward. I'd say the algorithm, you know, accuracy will likely increase, right? So that's just always a good thing um, because less, you know, false accepts, false rejects, right? That that's definitely a, a positive and welcome thing. I would also say that. Um, the routine use of biometrics on a day-to-day -day basis, which means that you have to show your face to, you know, kind of enter a door uh, or or kind of utter a voice sample on the on the phone, you know, explicitly every time you try to access your account at a bank, may may show some signs of slowing down to the at the uh, at the kind of expansion of uh, mobile authenticator devices. So basically. What I'm saying here is that once you use biometrics one time, right, maybe using a physical identity document verification, you establish a digital identity in, in a mobile app or a mobile wallet or, you know, some kind of a decentralized digital identity kind of thing. And then you can then use that verified credential electronically and digitally without having to use explicit biometrics all the time. Thank you both so much for joining us today. Yeah, thanks for having us. This was fun. Happy to do this in the future. If you like what you heard today, subscribe to Forrester's What It Means podcast on iTunes, Google Podcasts, and Spotify, or your favorite podcast player. To continue the conversation, follow Forrester on Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. Thanks for listening.